0: So, uh, recently we were watching this show called Incredible Animal Journeys with the kids, and the scene came on. And one of my boys who, who loves animals, if you know my boys, you know which one it is, he, he's watching this, and I can just watch him, like, falling apart. And when the scene finally ends, he just yells out, and he goes, God never does anything! God never helps anybody! And he just sprints out of the room. So sad. That was so sad. And so here's this this little boy, you know, who sees this moment, like this real life moment that we just happened to capture as proof of like God's absence, of God's failure to help, of God's failure to ever do anything. Whereas the voiceover narrator of the scene has framed it, has understood it as this moment of like unexpected compassion, whereby an animal dying in the infinite abyss of the ocean gets found by a friend so he doesn't have to die alone so like which is it you know is it a moment of absence or presence a scene of indifference or intervention well it's kind of hard to say isn't it above my pay grade but at minimum I think that we could all understand how a little boy who loves animals could see it and doubt which brings us to our topic for today, which is how to doubt and still believe, and our text for today, which is Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, also a story about a little boy. And so if you've got your Bibles, grab them. <clears throat> It'll be up here on the screen for you as well. Mark 9, starting verse 14. Now when they, this is Jesus, James, Peter, and John, came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, well, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, well, the teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him down to the ground and he thumbs at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Jesus answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Then he brought the boy to Jesus. When he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can. All things are possible to him who believes immediately. The boy's father cried out and he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Now, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him And he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Jesus, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Mark 9 verses 14 through 29. So whenever we talk about doubt, um, there's a certain group of people who get very confused and maybe even a little bit frustrated because they just cannot understand how anybody could ever doubt. Now, I call these people true believers. I don't mean this in a condescending way. It's just an accurate description. True believers. True believers are people who could not doubt God and God's goodness if they tried. People for whom faith is just the most natural thing imaginable, and so they simply cannot imagine how or why anybody could or should or would ever doubt God and God's goodness. Dave mentioned this in the first week of the series, but it is a very little known fact. That while everybody has been called upon to have faith, there is this sense in which faith is a spiritual gift that God gives some people and not other people. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, we'll read it. But to each one is given the manifestation, the gift of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and <clears throat> to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And so what we see here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that while all Christians have been called upon to have faith, yes, there is this sense in which faith is a spiritual gift that some people get and some people don't. And so just like some people have been spiritually gifted with an ability to teach, some people have been gifted with an ability to encourage, to give, to serve. So some people have been gifted with this ability to believe. And as Paul goes to great lengths to make clear throughout different parts of the New Testament, there is no hierarchy among the spiritual gifts wherein having one gift means that you're like a better person or you're a better Christian than somebody who has a different gift because that's not how gifts work, right? I mean, does any sane and sensible person brag about how awesome they are for receiving a gift? Many any of you do that? Would any of you go, man, look how awesome I am for this Lambo my daddy gave me for my 16th birthday? No, if your dad gave you a Lambo for your 16th birthday, he is awesome. You're not awesome, right? You're going to be terrible. He's awesome. It has nothing to do with you. That's not how gifts work. It's about the giver, not the recipient, right? All that to say, if you're someone who has that spiritual gift of faith, and I know some of you who do, that is a wonderful thing. And it's a gift to the body. It's a gift to the community. But you should also bear in mind that it does not make you any better and that faith simply doesn't come as naturally for a lot of the rest of us. I've, uh, I've never been bashful about my affinity for Stanley Hauerwas. I love Stanley, and he's so cute. <laughs> he's- He's a born and bred Central Texan who taught uh, theology and ethics at Notre Dame and Duke. He has no tolerance for BS. He cusses way too much. You see why I like him. And he was once named America's best theologian by Time Magazine back when Time Magazine made such proclamations. Um, Anyways, I love him. I I love what he says about faith in his memoir about his life. He's talking about how weird it is to be considered like a great theologian, America's best theologian, when you know the truth about how imperfect and flawed your own faith really is. Listen to what he says. He says, God's just not there for me in the way that God is just there for some. Now, God is there for my wife, my pastor, my best friend, but God's just not there for me in the same way. Prayer never comes easy for me. I'm not complaining, I assume this to be God's gift to help me think hard about what it means to worship God in a world where God is no longer simply there. Most people do not have to become a theologian to become a Christian, but I probably did. I can co-sign that. Um, And again, if you're a true believer, okay, someone who just has that spiritual gift of faith, then you just do not know what he is talking about because God is just there for you. But for a lot of people, And for an increasing number of people in the modern world, God simply isn't simply there. You follow me? For a lot of people, God simply isn't simply there. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that the modern world is on this like inescapable slide toward atheism. You might have heard some version of that story before. But uh, in point of fact, the percentage of people who are atheists, let's say in America, it's been roughly unchanged for like 80 years. Right. It's just really not moving around very much, which makes sense because atheism is one of those things that, you know, it seems kind of like, seems kind of exciting, seems kind of sexy, seems kind of fun, seems kind of, kind of bougie when you see it on the idea rack in the store, you know? You see it over there and you're like, hmm, that atheism crop top sure would look good on me, you know? <laughs> and so you try it on because it, uh, it looks good on the mannequin, it always does, but then you put it on and it never quite... It never quite looks as good on you, does it? Yeah, because eventually you have to wear that atheism crop top out into the blizzard that is the real world. The blizzard of joy and pain and purpose and meaning and morality that is the real world. And you discover that you don't really want to live in a world without God. Because a world without God is a world without meaning, purpose, and morality, at least as we have classically understood all of those things. Friedrich Nietzsche. He, uh, I think we got a picture of old Nietzsche. Look at that mustache. He is one of the, if not the most influential atheist who has ever lived. He told this famous parable about all this called the madman. Okay. It's called the madman parable. I'll get in character here. In this parable, the man, madman, he comes running into the town square early in the morning with this lantern that's lit. And he says, he's looking for God. Right? He's looking everywhere for God. And so all the villagers come crowd around him. You know, it's quite the spectacle, as you can imagine. And seeing as how they're all modern people who don't believe in God very much, they're, they're amused by the whole thing. And they're like, oh, you can't find God. Is he, you know, did you leave him at home? Is he under the bush? Why can't you find God here? And uh, then suddenly the madman, he gets very quiet. And he locks eyes with the crowd. And he yells out. And he says, I'll tell you where God is. We've killed him, you and I. And then he goes on to talk about the consequences of this terrible, deep, this killing of the idea of God in the modern world. And he says, man, what have we done? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from the sun? Where are we going? Backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Does it not become colder? And who's going to wipe this blood off of us? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games should we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? And the crowd's kind of stunned by all this. I don't know what to say. And so finally, the madman, he takes his lantern and he shatters it on the ground in front of the crowd. And he basically says to them that they ain't ready. That's what the kids would say. It now. Is They ain't ready. They ain't ready for the consequences of this terrible deed. They ain't ready for the challenge of trying to live in a world without God. Because while Nietzsche was an atheist, the ultimate atheist, he was also a very smart and honest atheist. And he knew that a world without God is not just a world without the great bearded sky fairy. But rather, it is a world where the most important things in life, things like purpose, meaning, and morality, they become so relativized so radically relativized that they're like dead leaves barely hanging on to winter branches just waiting for the slightest gust of wind to blow them all away and so as he says it a world without God is a world where we have unchained the earth from the sun it's a world without an anchor right because in a world without God the only anchor is what reason yeah right you have not noticed what is reasonable to you You might not be reasonable to me Reason's not going to work in a world without God the only anchor is what? the only possible anchor is what? well it's you you and do you think you're big enough for that? you big enough to anchor the cosmos you big enough to anchor the universe you big enough to anchor the world you big enough to anchor your world your little pseudo-sovereign self is going to anchor the world Well, good luck with that one. Here's how Carl Truman puts it. Uh, Nietzsche's point, right, is that modern atheism had not been very honest with itself about the situation it had gotten itself into. Here's how Truman says it. It is thus polite atheist whom the madman first engages in the town square, those who wish to have their comfortable, stable, secure lives, even as they have removed any foundation on which they might build such. But the non-existence of God is not like the existence of unicorns or centaurs. To dispense with God, however, is to destroy the very foundations on which a whole world of metaphysics and morality has been constructed and depends. In killing God, you take on the responsibility, the terrifying responsibility of being God yourself, of becoming the author of your own knowledge and your own ethics. You make yourself the creator of your world. And it would appear as though Nietzsche was onto something because despite all these proclamations of a tired wave of atheism sweeping over the modern world, it just keeps not happening. Mainly because most normal people instinctively understand that real true atheism, it just kind of sucks it rationally, scientifically, can't explain existence, right? Philosophically, morally, ethically, it just kind of sucks. And so atheism, it is fun to try on in the idea-changing room during your sophomore year of college after your first philosophy class or your standard existential midlife crisis. But then it is usually no thanks on wearing the atheism crop top out into the real world. And so rather than a tidal wave of atheism, what we are seeing in the modern world is more of a gradual Drift towards something like agnosticism. That's probably the best word. Agnosticism, a term that describes the growing group of people who believe in something, believe in something, but who struggle to believe in God as classically understood and who thus believe in something but aren't sure exactly what it is or isn't that they do or don't believe in. Okay? That's where a lot of people find themselves. I'm not going to spend much time uh, commenting on the complex set of factors by which belief has become difficult for modern people. Um, For for future kind of reading or digging, if you want to do it, there's two books I'll mention. The first one is called A Secular Age by uh, Charles Taylor. It's a great book. I must warn you, it is 700 pages long. But once you've read it, you get to brag about reading it for the rest of your life. It's amazing, like I'm bragging right now. And it's so big. Look, you put it down, and you stand on it. You're as tall as Joel. You can get stuff off the top shelf, anything you want. So a Secular Age by Charles Taylor. Uh, it's a total classic. And then um, the second book is actually one I wrote a few years ago. It's called Faith in the Shadows It's about my own journey dealing with doubt. I've actually got some copies uh, in Next Steps that we're gonna give away for free if that would be helpful for you. And then also in Next Step, there's some representatives from Alpha. That's a ministry we do for people who are new to or skeptical about faith. And so if you, or someone you know is skeptical about faith, go check out Next Steps and grab those resources. Um, but briefly, I do think it's important to understand uh, one really important thing here. And that is that doubt comes in different forms to different people for different reasons. You know, some people stumble in their faith because they just have this sense that like physics and biology and modern science in general has explained away the need for God. All right, I get that. I think it's a mistake, but I've been there. I've stubbed my toe on that one before. Then some people stumble because they feel like the world is just like too mean, too cruel to have been created by a good and gracious God. I've been there. Some people stumble because... Uh, they're just like all these religions, and it's overwhelming that there's so many religions that believe all these different things, and you start to go down the wormhole. And you're like, am I just a Christian because my parents were a Christian? Well, like, yeah, for a lot of us, yes, but does that mean that Christianity is not true? We've got all these other religions. I just don't know. Mostly, though, <clears throat> modern unbelief is not about a single thing or a single doubt, but rather it is the cumulative effect of not much experiencing God's presence in the world. Okay, modern unbelief, it's not a single thing. It's not like a silver bullet doubt. It's the cumulative experience of not really experiencing God's presence in the world. I I know I've taken a long approach to the text. We've done a couple passes on the runway, but I thought it was important to sketch out the modern context of faith in which God simply isn't simply there for a lot of us. And so with that context in place, let's return to our story and see what we can learn about how to doubt and still believe. So Jesus... Comes down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. When he gets back on level ground, he sees this big crowd. They're arguing. At the center of the argument, there is a father and a little boy. Like the father, uh, the little boy, is demon possessed, and he has been for a really long time. And so his father brings him to Jesus, hoping that Jesus can help him. He instead finds Jesus' disciples. They try, they fail. And we sense a little bit of exasperation in Jesus' reaction. Did you notice that? He's like, "For real? I mean, how long do I have to put up with you all before you understand?" But uh, nevertheless, the father seemingly feels permission to bring his little boy to Jesus, at which point he has one of these seizures. And then Jesus does something very curious. He asks the father a question. Do you remember the question? What does Jesus say? How long has this been happening to him? Now, I say this is curious because it's not like Jesus needs to know the answer to that question in order to heal this little boy, right? Right? It's not like Jesus is gonna be like, oh, it's 10 years. Well, let me let me power up real quick. <laughs> no, Jesus, Jesus doesn't need to know this. And so why is Jesus asking? Him? Well, I, I suspect that Jesus asked because Jesus wants to understand the suffering that this little boy and his dad have endured. Because quite often the first step toward healing is understanding that your suffering has been understood, right? So much of the time it's understanding that your suffering has been understood. Right, and so the father tells Jesus that this has been happening since childhood and then he begs Jesus to heal his little boy if Jesus can. And this is one of those moments, man, where I just bet, I bet, I bet there was like a little bit of a twinkle in Jesus's eye. A little bit of a mischievous grin upon his face because Jesus is like, if I can heal him, my man, I do not think you know who you are talking to. <laughs> the question is not if I can heal him. The question is if you can believe. Can you believe, Father? At which point the Father offers this just like comically perfect, hilarious, and honest response to Jesus. He says, oh, I do believe, but please help my unbelief. And there's so many things that I love about this. First off, I love how honest it is. Because when you say, I do believe, but please help my unbelief, what you're really saying is what? What? I do believe and I don't believe, right? I do believe, help my unbelief. The other thing that that means, the more direct way to say this is I do believe and I don't believe and I just love this because I think that's just the way it is with most of us, right? We do believe, we do have faith, but we're also these cosmically and comically imperfect, limited, fragile creatures who are incapable of having perfect faith. That's not in the cards for you. That's not what God made when he made you. And so instead of lying about it or making excuses for it, he just tells the truth about it. Yeah, I, you know what? I do believe. Also, don't believe a little bit. And then second, I love how he puts the burden of his unbelief. And imagine how big it was in that moment with those stakes. He puts the burden of his unbelief where? He just puts it right on Jesus takes his unbelief this huge burden biggest burden in his life in that moment he puts it on Jesus I mean just think about how and I don't mean this in a cavalier way but I want you to think about how playful this interaction is okay I want you to look at it through that lens because think about this there is a sense in which the stakes are really high it's about a little boy finding healing for the first time in his life the stakes could not be higher but do you think there was any chance that Jesus wasn't going to heal that little boy you think there's any chance Jesus wasn't going to heal that? You think if the father had answered poorly, you know, Jesus is like, hey, yeah, I can heal him. If you can't believe, can you believe? And the father was like, I believe if you give me a private jet." I don't know. If he said something stupid, you think Jesus would have been like, Ugh, sorry, kid, look, I would love to heal you, but your dad is a moron. <laughs> and so I'm, you know this, son, you know, your dad's more so, yeah, I'm just afraid you're going to have to. You're going to have to tough it out with that demon for the rest of your life. I can refer you to customer service if you'd like. I really do feel bad about that. Do you think there was any chance that was going to happen? No. Of course it wasn't. Of course Jesus was going to heal that little boy. And so this back and forth with his father is clearly a means of Jesus trying to connect with this man and help him understand who he's talking to. And so there is a playfulness in Jesus' response to the father. But then there is also a playfulness in the father's response back to Jesus. Because notice, Jesus has just busted this dude for his lack of belief, right? Jesus is like, if I can help, dude, are you serious? If I can help? But instead of getting all angry and angsty about it, what does the father do? He just volleys his unbelief right back over to Jesus. I imagine like a rhetorical tennis match. Jesus is like, if I believe. You know, you're talking the father just hits it back. And he's like, hey, you know what, Jesus? You know what? You got me. You got me. Dead writes, I don't have perfect faith. I don't. I do believe, and I kind of don't believe But if you are who you say you are, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, man, then I'm betting you know how to handle my unbelief. So here is yours. And again, man, I bet you there was a twinkle in Jesus's eye, a smile on Jesus's face. And Jesus was like, "Okay, I see you. I see you. I see you taking me more seriously then you take your unbelief because, quite frankly, I hope you take this the wrong right way. That's the problem with a lot of us. We take our unbelief way too seriously. A lot of us take it way too seriously. Some of us we get so freaked out by our doubts, we're like, I just don't know, man. There's all this stuff I don't know. I'm not certain about it. There's this, there's that. I don't know how to make perfect sense of it. It's like, well, yeah, man, what were you expecting? Do you know how little you are? Do you know how long you have been here? Do you know how long you're going to be here? Don't take this the wrong way. But you were like a cosmic fart. You were here and then gone. That is all you are. And you are so shocked that you can't figure this whole thing out. That is news to you? That bothers you? It Reminds me of this another great text, Romans 3, verses 1 through 4. This is Paul talking. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Psh, may it never be. Rather, God will be found true, though every man be found a liar. Now, in context, Paul's dealing with this question of why so many Jews had rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And then more specifically, if that meant that God had been unfaithful to Israel. And what we see here, specifically in Romans 3, and then fleshed out in more detail in Romans 9 through 11, is that no matter how fatal Israel's rejection of God appears, God is never going to reject Israel, ever. Because Israel's unfaithfulness cannot nullify God's faithfulness. May it never be. All that to say, how do you doubt and still believe? Well, I think it's important to first note that y'all, we basically all do it basically all the time, right? None of you here have perfect faith. And yet you're here with faith. Okay, so we do it all the time. But to spell it out just a little bit more for you, it starts with you remembering and resting in the good news of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is that God has made promises to you. Not because you deserved them, not because you had so much faith, but because God is good. And kind and merciful. And God has promised that his faithfulness to you is not dependent upon your ability to have perfect faith in him. God has promised that his faithfulness is more powerful than your doubt. I don't care how big you feel like your doubt is. Your doubt is teeny and tiny compared to God's titanic, eternal faithfulness. And so look, if you are taking your faithlessness more seriously than you're taking the eternal God's faithfulness, then you need to chill out. And you need to get over yourself a little bit. And you need to place whatever imperfect faith you have in God's great faithfulness to you and not your ability to have perfect faith in God. Because that is the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we come before you and we confess that we are here because and only because of good. And gracious God has decided to host us for one more day. We come before you, God, and we confess that we believe. There is so much belief in this room. I know there is. I've seen it. I've felt it. I'm a part of it. But God, there's also a lot of unbelief in this room. We do believe and we don't believe in all sorts of ways. And rather than denying that or hiding it or defending it, we just tell the truth about it because you understand. You understand. You know what you made when you made us. You know we're fragile, limited creatures. And so I pray that you would help us to place whatever imperfect faith we have in your faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.